parked the hansom at the curb next to the Grand Central's entrance for ladies. Jim used that entrance when he didn't want to be seen by reporters. Sam left the cab without paying and ran inside. Colonel Fisk, he shouted to a young porter polishing gas fixtures. From atop his ladder, the porter pointed to the grand staircase. A strange multicolored light dappled the steps, light of the kind that fell through stained glass. Halfway up the stair, Jim Fisk, bigger than a fairgrounds balloon, froze under the gaze of a handsome black-haired young man, half visible in a clot of shadow on the second-floor landing. Big Jim's tawny red-gold hair and waxed mustache gleamed. On his starched shirt bosom shone his ever-present diamond, big as a baby's fist, bright as a locomotive headlight. He raised one hand as if pleading. Petrified, Sam watched the handsome young man point a revolver and fire. The bullet drove Fisk backward. He sat down on the stair, against the wall. The shooter, Ned Stokes, was a playboy, Jim's sometime partner, and a rival for the favors of Jim's mistress, the actress Josie Mansfield. Recently the two men had confronted one another in court. Stokes fired again. Fisk cried out, jerking against the wall, clutching the bosom of his dark blue admiral's coat, heavily ornamented with gold frogs and epaulets. A bloodstain bloomed on his corpulent belly. His eyes, usually so full of mirth and bonhomie, bulged. Sam held out the sealed envelope, trying to convey its urgency. Nothing came from his mouth but a frustrating croak. Hotel staff from the second floor swarmed around Ned Stokes, disarmed him, and wrestled him to the carpet. Fisk sat against the wall, breathing noisily, bleeding all over his fine uniform. Things blurred briefly. Sam found himself in room 213, where Fisk lay on a divan, his coat off, his right sleeve and shirt front two bloody messes. A doctor bent over him. The bullet is more than four inches deep, Colonel, in your bowels. I can't find it. Sam knelt beside the divan, showed the envelope. I'm sorry I was late. Mr. Gould sent this urgent message. Fisk's big round eyes, usually so jolly, were full of mist and pain. Nothing's urgent anymore. I go where the woodbine twineth. It was one of Fisk's favorite expressions, brought along from his youth as a peddler on the back roads of Vermont. Somewhere glass broke. The scene, Fisk half on, half off the divan, gasping like a beached whale, Sam kneeling, dark observers round about like mourners at a bier, rapidly shrank, boxed by darkness, until it was no more than a small diorama-like rectangle in the distance. Sam began to toss and thrash. Sweating and gasping for air, he came out of the nightmare. He sat up in the dark, still gripped by the spell of the dream. The windows of his bedroom were open on the sultry air of early June. Far away over the Atlantic, heat lightning flashed. He cudgeled his memory until things began to right themselves. This wasn't 1872, when Fisk died at the Grand Central. This was 1893. He was in his sixteen-room summer house by the shore at Long Branch, New Jersey. He heard the sea curling and murmuring below the open windows. He smelled the salt air and his own night sweat.
Gould had sent him to the Grand Central with a message for Fisk that afternoon, but it wasn't in a sealed envelope. It was a verbal summons for Fisk to return to Erie headquarters on an upper floor of the Opera House for a consultation pertaining to a stockholder's threatened lawsuit. Because of traffic, Sam didn't even reach the hotel until after the shooting. He joined the others in the death watch in room 213, where Fisk lay breathing his last. Sam heard a second crash of glass, someone moving on the ground floor, someone else on the staircase. Was his wife out of her bedroom? Or his daughter? Who was the intruder? A common thief? Or someone else? Samuel Stephen Driver, the millionaire railroad baron, swung his bare feet off the bed, picked up the hem of his red and white striped cotton flannel nightshirt. He left his red leather mules under the bed and stole barefoot past a wardrobe crammed with nightclothes, bought by his wife, that he refused to wear. At the door to the hallway, he heard pegged flooring creak, then his daughter's voice. Who's there? Who is it? Sam slipped toward the stairs, his heart pumped with fear, but the invasion of his home generated resolve more than wrath. He wouldn't let himself or his loved ones be threatened this way. He was a survivor. The others, Vanderbilt, Drew, Boss Tweed, poor, lusty Jim, whom everyone liked for his generosity and youthful exuberance, they were all gone. Gould, too, last year, dead of tuberculosis at 56. Sam was still standing. On the wall of his New York office hung a plaque illuminated like a medieval manuscript. Never let them get the best of you. He'd lost count of all the things he'd done to live up to that motto. To the left on the ground floor, a gaslight sputtered and brightened in the front parlor. Sam's hair hung over his brow. His sweaty hand slid on the balustrade as he crept down toward the light a step at a time. Offshore, flashes of white lit the greasy swells. French doors opening to the broad porch had been forced, two small panes broken, scattering the Persian carpet with shards that reflected a dim gaslight he assumed his daughter had turned on. Jenny's strained, oval face was turned toward him, her wide blue eyes startled and uncertain. Jenny was eighteen, with her mother's slender but ample figure and auburn hair plaited in a single long braid. Her nightrobe, persimmon silk, showed costly touches of russet piping on the lapels. Papa, I heard the glass break, so I ran down. Stand aside, Jenny. He advanced another step into the suitably cluttered Victorian parlor. The intruder skulked near the broken doors. Sam was hanged if he could dredge up a memory of who the man might be. He was small, middle-aged, handsome in his youth, perhaps, but now with sagging dewlaps and pouches under his eyes. A sweat-grimed collar showed beneath his seersucker coat. What the devil are you doing in my house, sir? Tell me your name. Defiant, the intruder pulled a pasteboard square from his inside pocket. Upstairs, Sam heard his wife call his name. Stay there, Grace. Don't come down. Sam's voice was strong, deep, belying the emotion he felt. Sam believed in hiding fear from enemies. It was one of the principles that had raised him to his current eminence. At fifty-two, he was one of the richest men in America. Shorter than Jenny by two inches, he was stocky, with large freckled hands and curly auburn hair, graying and receding from his widow's peak. 
He resembled a butcher or a cabman more than what he was, although his eyes, dark and darting, suggested a man of formidable intelligence and cunning. Sam read the soiled card. T. Adolph Riley, General Contracting, Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. He tossed the card on the floor. I don't know you. Oh, you do, driver. By God, you know me. I lost the bid to build your hospital. Someone creaked a stair step. Grace, do not come in here. I'm handling this. The stair creaked again. Sam began to sweat. He said, I've built nine hospitals and I'll build more. I have no idea which of them you refer to. Chester, Pennsylvania, Riley said. St. Michael the Archangel. They're all named St. Michael the Archangel, if that's any of your damn business. Now what the devil are you doing here? I'm bankrupt. I've lost my home. My wife's in an institution for dipsomaniacs. You sound like you'll soon follow her. The wrong thing to say. Riley shouted at him. God damn you! I submitted the low bid for the Chester Hospital, thousands below the others. Riley's reddening cheeks told Sam this was passing beyond the boundary of argument into hopeless, unreasonable confrontation. Sam moderated his tone. Oh, yes, I remember. Why don't you have a seat? We'll discuss it. Discuss? Why? Riley clawed at an inner pocket of his wrinkled coat. You won't beggar anyone else. I came here to make sure. And there it was an old but dependable thirty-one caliber Colt's pocket pistol, the barrel but two and a half inches long. Sam recognized the weapon because he'd carried the same kind more than once. It was unfailingly accurate at close range.